Let's go for a ride. There are many stories here. Like this place. Like many things here. Some have become lost. But all lost things yearn to be found. And all stories long to be told. I've searched through my building. Gathering up stories from every floor. From the basement to the ninth story, and every floor in between. Stories of choice, of the hopeless, the redeemable, and the lost. Stories that will unlock something inside of you and carry you through fear to your future. Get your copy of the Lift's First Anthology on Amazon in print and Kindle. Let's go for a read. <laughs> Ninth Story Studios, giving story a voice. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org to discover more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. Welcome to Season 3, Episode Number 8 of The Lift. As you may already know, we released a written anthology of all new stories set in the world of The Lift. It includes nine full-size stories, actually each about two to three times longer than the episodes you hear on the show, written by some of your favorite authors from the show. And, of course, Victoria is in all of them. We've also included special illustrations for each story by Jeanette Andromeda, as well as a deeper look into Victoria's world with technical drawings of Victoria's music box, collected letters and drawings by Victoria's mother, and even sheet music and a few words from our composers. This collection is something really special that we're very proud of, and we're happy that we get to share it with you. Show your love of the show by getting one for yourself, or introduce a friend to Victoria by getting a copy for them, too. Of course, your purchase of the print or Kindle version helps support the show. We're hoping to bring you a greater number of episodes next season, and the successful sale of our anthology will make that happen. There's only a few episodes left in this season, so while you're waiting between episodes, go out and grab a copy of our anthology and enjoy. See our book trailer and find links to make your purchase at victoriaslift.com. Now, today we have a story by one of your favorite returning authors, the very talented C. Brian Brown. Hey there, it's C. Brian Brown. I'm the author of today's story, The Greatest Disease. If you enjoy the story, check out more of my work at cbrianbrown.net, and you can always find more episodes of The Lift at victoriaslift.com. Today's episode of The Lift is told by Graham Rowett, David Alt, Cynthia Lohman, Erica Sanderson, and yours truly. I have lost so much. My name is Victoria. I am bound to this place, charged with guiding those who must choose. Don't be afraid. I can never again be the little girl I was. Will you accept your fate or change it? I have my music box and a library lost, but I sometimes feel very alone. Won't you join me? 
It's time for your ride on the lift. <laughs> Don't be afraid. Zack strides down the sidewalk, hands thrust deep into his pockets. He brushes by other people, never slowing or moving out of the way, ignoring the daggered looks and harsh words from his fellow pedestrians. His shoulder catches an elderly lady and knocks her to the concrete. He spares her a glance and keeps walking. Asshole. Yeah, someone will help her. After all, this isn't New York or Chicago, but the middle of Ohio, the home of the Buckeyes. The people here are crazy for the team, and the people not here are crazy for the team. The crazies didn't match, not even a little bit, but such is the glory of collegiate sports. Fans everywhere worked themselves into a frenzy over schedules, rankings, and refereeing, starting incendiary conversations and ruining friendships. It's so damn stupid. Zack stops in the middle of the sidewalk, blocking the foot traffic. Trestleball is a conspiracy theory created by the liberal sports media to hide non-talented players and shitty overall coaching. People stare. A few tell them to shut up. But one die-hard Buckeye fan stops. What the fuck, man? Zack shakes his head and laughs. <laughs> his body rumbles with humor. What? They're not nicknamed the Luckeyes for nothing. You're crazy, dude, the man says. As he walks away, he yells, O-H. The sidewalk erupts with an answering chorus of, I-O. Zack staggers to the nearest building, laughing harder, and leans against the rough brick exterior until humor turns to pain and the tears come, purging as much emotion as they can in the smallest amount of time. His sobs, so long and so loud, stretch his ribs until his chest hurts. No one stops to console him. No one cares about a man bawling in the middle of the city. But you talk shit about the Buckeyes. Get a hold of yourself. Crying isn't going to help anyone. And he needs to help his family. You know what to do then. Sure, he knows. But with anything difficult, starting is the hardest part. At the outset, one's thoughts range to the best and worst outcomes, and everything in between. These ideas introduce new friends, worry, anger, and depression, who keep you on edge, lashing out at wife and kids, being unreasonable at work, until you're knocking old ladies over in public. They're the adult equivalents of underage drinking, smoking pot, and stealing video games from department stores. That's what happens when you get bad news, with a capital B and capital N. It had taken him weeks to give in. To this spot on this sidewalk, fighting and clawing against the peer pressure exerted by his new buddies. But cave he did, and their bad ideas made a stupid, sick kind of sense. He straightens and wipes his eyes with the back of his hand. People avoid his gaze. The old lady he knocked down still struggles to get up. No one has stopped to help her. Bad news in spades and no one cares. One deep breath later, he pushes on, this time taking care not to knock anyone down. His destination isn't far. The building, erected less than two decades ago, still smells new. 
Modern architecture blends with rustic overtones to create a sense of progress and tradition. He approaches the receptionist and smiles. Hello. Welcome to Cryer and Cryer. How can I help make your tomorrow better? Hi. I have a 10 o'clock appointment with Mr. Dosh. Of course, sir. Your name, please. Zachary Williams. She picks up the phone and her manicured nails tap out an extension. She speaks softly for a second, smiles into the receiver, and thanks whomever was on the other end. She hangs up and turns her wattage back to Zach. He wants to compliment the smile, to let her know that her upbeat attitude is a joy to behold in this world of shit and horrors, such as unnamed domestic terrorism, Russian interference in an election, and Donald Trump as president. But he says nothing, because it is a world of shit and horror, and these things just aren't done. You can go on up. However, the elevators are being serviced today, so you'll need to take the stairs or the staff elevator. Nine flights of stairs or an over-large boxy elevator. I think I'll take the easy way out. <laughs> I see what I did there. It's around the corner, sir, and through the double doors. Just hit the rep button to call it down. Zack thanks her and follows the wall around to the double doors. He'd expected polished wood, bronze accoutrements, thick beveled windows, no expense spared. But these doors are heavy gray plastic, more like the kind separating kitchens from dining rooms and restaurants. They shriek when he walks through. A small girl stands before the single elevator. She looks over her shoulder and smiles. Loud, aren't they? Yes. They need a good oiling. Well, they are very old, like most things around here. But they still do what they're supposed to. I see. Does this elevator always take so long? Usually, but it's still faster than the stairs. You're pretty smart for a kid. The door slides open, and Zack follows the girl into the car. He presses the button for the ninth floor. The girl wears a purple dress with a ruffled bottom skirt and layered sleeves. Sticking out from the bottom hem is a crinoline skirt of lighter purple. A white bonnet hangs off the back of her neck. She stares at him, smiling, but there's something in her eyes. Judgment, maybe, as if she knows him, knows his heart and the decision festering there. What floor? The girl stares at him for a long moment. Her lips purse slightly, and she scratches her cheek. Eight, I think. You think? I could go to nine, but I think eight is better. Oh yes, definitely eight. He pokes the button and the door slides shut. My name is Victoria. What's yours? Zach, does your father always let you run around this building? The girl is silent for a moment, then replies. Do your boys always listen to you? I have. No, they... Zack trails off and turns to look at her. How do you know about my boys? I'm smart, remember? Zack shakes his head and steps closer to her. The hairs on the back of his neck salute as the girl's form shimmers, becomes opaque, and solidifies again. What are you doing? You shouldn't know about my kids. There are many things I shouldn't know, Zack. But I do. Can be a burden, if you must know. The elevator shudders and screeches, a wounded animal in the concrete jungle, and Zack stumbles into the wall. The floor indicator strains to move, bouncing between floors seven and eight. 
Victoria temporarily forgotten. Zack presses buttons. The elevator dings, but doesn't move. Duck. Perhaps we should talk. It may help the elevator move. Why would that make the elevator move? Talking helps. Am I correct? If only to pass the time. Talking helps sometimes, but you need the right audience. Otherwise, you're just pissing into the wind. Blowback. What? One spring, when I was very small and my family still lived in England, a skunk moved under our porch. My father told me the best way to get the skunk to move on was to mark the territory as ours. It was the spring, like I said, and the winds were strong, smiling. My father said he'd have to be careful peeing, lest he end up peeing on himself. Then he sent me off to the garden. I assume he was careful. Ah, blowback. You don't want to pee on yourself, do you, Mr. Williams? No, I don't want to pee on myself. I shower with water. What the hell am I thinking, talking like that to a strange little kid? (laughs) Silly. I bet your wife thinks you're funny. I doubt that. And if so, she'd never tell me. Zack continues pressing buttons on the elevator panel. Are you sure? Yeah. The elevator car lurches upward several feet and rattles to a stop at the eighth floor. The doors slide open without provocation. She's not into compliments giving or receiving. Zack stares at a long hallway, the outer wall no longer the sleek, modern design of Mr. Dosh's swanky investment building, but two rows of windows stacked on top of each other. The top panes are rounded near the ceiling, adding a layer of design he'd only seen in some of the city's older buildings. Outside, a deep gray haze obscures the city from view. He'd never been on the eighth floor before, but this didn't seem right. Opposite the wall of windows are closed doors, all labeled with small plaques he can't read from the elevator. The hall continues as far as he can see into darkness, but immediately overhead, bronze chandeliers provide pale yellow light over the first three doors. Zack gives his head a little shake and steps off the elevator, walking to the first door. The plaque Neatly printed with raised letters reads, No News. The knob rattles when Zack twists it. The sign on the next door declares the room to be Good News. I could use some of that. He pulls on the door. It shakes in the frame. It doesn't open. He pushes, just in case. It still refuses him. Naturally. Well, what's behind door number three? Zack smirks. He lifts his hand running his finger along the lettering, tracing them from start to finish. He knows they're real. The sudden, gaping hole in his soul tells him that, but he still needs to confirm their authenticity. His touch falters at the last S, and the despair, previously content to sit low, leaps upward, and he shuts his eyes against a wave of vomit. Bad news. With a capital B and a capital N. Fuck you. Fuck you with a capital F and a capital Y. He doesn't see the point in putting it off, and he opens the door with more force than necessary. It arcs inward, slamming against the far wall. Two sets of horrified eyes stare back at him. Mr. Williams? Dr. Carson stands abruptly. 
He's behind the big oak desk in his office. The one that should in no way be in this building. But it's the person sitting on the patient side that almost doubles Zack over. Hello, Zack. Melinda stands and puts a warm hand on his arm. His hair stands up, as it does every time she touches him, and he tries to smile, but can't. His wife's eyes are hooded, the pupils dilated. After seventeen years, it's an expression he's seen before. Anger. Dr. Carson was just telling me the results of your last test, though one from two weeks ago. Was he? I guess patient privacy doesn't mean anything anymore. Privacy, Zach? Is that what you really want to go with here? What about trust, commitment, in sickness and in health? Zach pinches the bridge of his nose. It isn't supposed to go like this. Melinda was never supposed to know. He'd wanted to spare her and the boys this misery of knowing. You're fired, Doc. Fucking fired. Dr. Carson shrugs. You don't have to fire me, Mr. Williams. You just don't come back. It doesn't matter to me. I have other patients that will gladly pay my mortgage. Now, if you'll excuse me. Carson ushers them out into the hallway and shuts the door in their face. Why would you want to keep this from me? Doesn't matter now, does it? Of course it matters. I know you, Zach. Or have you forgotten the last 17 years? No, of course he hadn't forgotten them. He can't just erase the time, nor would he want to. There's something else. You're still hiding something. What are you not telling me? Nothing. Why are you even here? How are you here? You've been acting strange. I want to know why. You couldn't just ask me? I did, remember? You said it was nothing, but you've been to the doctor four times in the past seven weeks, and nothing is bullshit. You're not talking to me. If I had something to say, I'd say it. Really? You're sick, Zach. Really sick. You didn't think that deserved a mention? I wanted to spare you. Spare me? Spare me. How could you possibly spare me from that news? Understanding dawns on Melinda's face, and her head jerks to the side. She blows out a quick breath and stalks to the elevator. Zack hurries behind her. Melinda knifes the elevator button and then brings the finger up into his face. I can absolutely forgive you for not telling me you were sick. I get that. But this other thing... How can you even think about it? How could you do that to the boys? What other thing? Their father dying in some antiseptic-laden white room would be bad enough, but at least they'd have time to absorb the idea, to prepare for it, to fucking say goodbye. Wow, Melinda. Thanks for that image. You're welcome. The elevator door opens. I'm not going to sugarcoat this for you. This is marriage. This is what I signed up for. Love, honesty, side by side. Zack tries to get in with her, but Melinda holds up a hand and presses her palm into Zack's chest. You decided to ride this train solo, remember? Wait for the next one, and I'll see you at home. We're not done here. The number indicator stops on the ninth floor. What the hell? That makes no sense to Zack. Why would she go up? 
Zack presses the button repeatedly, not stopping until the door opens before him. He hurries inside, hits the up button. Come on. The lift moves slower than normal. Sweat trickles down Zack's brow, and he wipes it away with the back of his hand. Melinda has access to his life insurance, and, as a signatory, she can make changes. She knows this, and their financial planner, Carlton Dosh, knows this too. And if Melinda changes things... The door finally opens, and Zack rushes out. He doesn't see Mr. Dosh until it's too late. The two men collide and tumble to the floor in a tangle of limbs and a litany of grunts. Zack lands on top, Dosh's overripe body providing him with ample cushioning. Dosh pushes on Zack's chest, and Zack climbs to his feet, looking wildly about. Everything appears normal, none of those old-fashioned lights or floor-to-ceiling windows on this floor. The closest office bears the name Adam Pascal and the title, Retirement Planning. The only thing Zack doesn't see is his wife. He starts down the hall. Mr. Williams. The voice stops him in his tracks. What? Why in the hell are you running down the hallway? We're adults, Mr. Williams, not children. And running because you're... Dosh checks his watch. 38 minutes late is not acceptable. Have you seen my wife? No, I have not. I don't believe you mentioned she'd be coming today. She wasn't. But I saw her downstairs with Dr. Carson, and she took the elevator up. That's impossible. There are no doctors in this building. You think I don't know that? Carson's office is in Westerville, but she was just there. Come to my office. I have ten minutes before my next appointment. Coffee and donut can wait. I have a copy of your life insurance policy requested. Good. That's good news. Indeed. This way. Zack follows Dosh to his office and falls into a chair. The rotund man busies himself on the other side, leafing through a folder. Though he'd been here several times before, Zack only now notices the pictures on Dosh's desk. A smiling wife, a son and a daughter, even a cute little golden doodle in a few of them. Portraits of a life. Here we are. I've taken the liberty of binding it for you. The first page is of the contents, and I've highlighted the page number you'll need for quick access. I also highlighted the pertinent passages on the page for easier reference. Thank you. Of course, it's what you pay me for, Mr. Williams. Now, if you'll excuse- I think I'm losing my mind, Mr. Dosh. Seeing things. Little kids. My wife downstairs. That may be, and if so, I suggest you either find your real doctor, or hurry on about your business of dying. What the fuck? You heard me, Mr. Williams. You come rushing up here late, claiming you're chasing your wife from a fictional doctor's office downstairs. This after your frantic phone call three days ago requesting a meeting and a copy of your life insurance policy with the suicide clause highlighted. That request alone is enough to make any intelligent person take notice. However, back to my original point, Mr. Williams. I'm not your shrink, your priest, or your friend. I don't care if you're sick. I don't care if you kill yourself because you're sick. I don't care if your wife cashes out your policy after you kill yourself. I get it. You don't care. Thanks. I appreciate your honesty. No, you don't. No one wants to hear the truth, Mr. Williams. People don't want to know what others really think. Not about them, not about politics or religion, not whether the sky is blue or grey. Because you're right, Mr. Williams, people don't care anymore. 
We've become so sensitive that we've created generations of insensitivity where it's easier not to care. Zack thinks of the old woman he knocked over earlier. Did anyone ever stop to help her? The last he'd seen, she was crawling on her hands and knees, trying to get up. Hell, he didn't even go back, and he was the one who'd put her there in the first place. Not long ago, but before bad news, maybe he'd start thinking of time as BBN and ABN, before bad news and after bad news. Zack had paid his oldest boy, Brent, to cut the grass and rake up all the clippings for disposal. They'd agreed on price. His kid wanted some video game, and Zack had sat back with a beer and book, proud that his son was willing to work for money. Too many kids expected handouts these days. The kid came in less than 30 minutes later, demanding his money, and Zack got up to check his son's quality of work. The boy had missed patches of grass with the mower, and from what Zack could tell, most of the clippings had been raked into Melinda's flower bed. That's not acceptable. Go fix it. I did the best I could. I want my money. You rushed it, man. Look at the wavy lines in the yard. And your mom will throw a shit fit if she sees all that grass in her flowers. Go fix it. Dad, we agreed on a price for a service. The service is done. Now pay me. I'm not paying you for your shitty work. Sorry. It's not very nice, Dad. Thanks. I don't know what you want me to say, Brent. I'm not going to tell you it looks good. It doesn't. I'm your father. And it's my job to prepare you for what's outside the four walls of this house. You know what's out there, buddy? I assume a paycheck. Not for work like that. Brent, no one out there gives a shit about you. You do this kind of work for an employer. He's not going to give you a chance to fix it. He's just going to fire you. What happens when you get caught speeding? Do you think the cops are going to care you were in a hurry? You were late for whatever? No. But I do care. And it's my job to be honest with you. To square your jaw and make sure you know what's out there is hard. And if you slack, the world's going to kick you in the dick. Nobody in this world is going to care about you as much as the people within these four walls. Brent had stormed off and slammed his door. The next day, when Zack got home from work, the yard had been redone and everything looked good. He paid Brent the money and the boy bought his game. A lesson learned. Okay, then. Zack stands and lifts the insurance policy in mock salute to Dosh. Thanks for this. Zack leaves the office and, having had enough of elevators, heads to the stairs. Cryer and Cryer's building is 12 stories. On the landing, he looks up and down, debating the direction he wants to go. Pain and suffering waits in either direction. The big difference in directions is in who does the suffering. If he goes up, he gets out of it, and it's on his family. He can't do that to them. That's the truth. Plain and simple. And Zack knows Dosh is right. People don't care anymore. They don't care about him, his cancer, or his life. Zack knows, because he's one of those people, too. Zack starts down the stairs. He may be carrying some heavy shit, but he won't be lifting it alone. It wouldn't be long before bad news, with its capital B and capital N, became just regular old bad news. He might not be able to change everyone else, but he could change, and maybe die with a little dignity. When he gets to the lobby, 
Zack finds the receptionist who helped him earlier. He approaches her, smiling. <laughs>